Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. So this week, we have a, a new release of Elixir LS. That's a link, a Elixir language server. Um, the big improvements here is better autocomplete. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this. I think what I see right now, I use Vim, by the way, and, and I have a... Um, Conquer of completion uh, installed in Vim, so I'm I'm getting to leverage this as well. But a lot of Visual Studio Code users get to use uh, Elixir LS as, uh, as well, and the autocomplete story there is really nice, and they're making it even better. So from what I experience in Vim, my autocomplete actually shows um, the functions, but only one arity of it at a time, right? And so uh, the update now brings multiple arities into your autocomplete. Uh, and it also annotates it to show that it's uh, perhaps it's a private function that you're uh, auto-completing. So uh, lots of good improvements. Elixir LS is just getting better and better and better. And I'm very excited about the release. Uh, also coming up, uh, last week we actually talked about a book that's uh, that re- released into beta by Prague Prague uh, called Testing Elixir. This week, uh, a good friend of mine, Herman Valesco, is publishing a work-in-progress book also about testing, but this one is going to be focused more on test-driven development in Elixir. Uh, you can find uh, the book at tddphoenix.com, and we'll have the link in the show notes as well. Um, this is going to be a good book, I, I can already tell, because um, ThoughtBot has a very good – Herman works at ThoughtBot, by the way. Um, ThoughtBot has a very good TDD uh, culture. And so having a, a book about that and showing the, the benefits of it is going to be a, a really good resource for a lot of folks. Also, Elixir's website is going to start publishing case studies. So the first one is on Brex, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. That will be a great resource for people when they're trying to be advocates for Elixir in their own, inside their own organizations, and I encourage you to check that out. Also, I just wanted to add a thing on Elixir LS. If you are looking to uh, get started with Elixir and you're wanting to find get an IDE kind of environment set up, uh, check out a, a blog post I wrote about Elixir in VS Code, which walks you through which in, uh, plugins to install and how to get that set up. And it goes over Elixir LS. And uh, I keep that up to date. So um, it's a good resource to be able to use going forward. Also in the news, we, there's a new library on the block. Um, this one is called Caffey. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, Caffey provides a quick way of spinning up an admin portal to manage your resources. Um, if you've ever worked in uh, Rails, you you might remember a library called Active Admin. It's a it's a it's a big DSL to uh, quickly spin up an admin portal on the on the back end, so that way you're not spending a ton of time on it. Um, and Caffey is accomplishing a lot of the same uh, a lot of the same things for Elixir and Phoenix. Unique about Caffey is that Boy, it looks really good. It's the design on it is really nice, um, and also it works well with Phoenix contexts, which is unique to Caffey. Um, there's other uh, admin uh, libraries, uh, admin portal libraries out there, but uh, a lot of them were made pre Phoenix context. So it's good to see that this one's keeping up with the times, and it looks great. Uh, you can find a link there to their GitHub in the show notes. And finally, ElixirConf US 2020 has been announced, and there's a call for proposals, and tickets will go on sale soon. Uh, This will be the first virtual Elixir conference, the US Elixir conference, and so this means also there are more opportunities to attend. So we're going to be learning more about this in the future, so stay tuned. 
that's it for the news. We are pleased today to be joined by Wojtek Mock. He is uh, a longtime member and contributor in the Elixir community. He's uh, been on podcasts before. He's given conference presentations. And we're super happy to have him here with us uh, to help kind of give get some insight into what's new in the Elixir 1.11 release that's coming out that has not yet been released. So, Wojtek, welcome. Um, hey, everyone. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. All right, Wojtek. So first, we have to like we have to address the issue of where you work because that has changed, right? It's like you were working at this this company called Platforma Tech, and then now you're not. So like, what's what's going on there? Yeah. So uh, it changed and it didn't. Um, so basically, <laughs> uh, I am I, currently working on on Dashpeed, uh, which is a company that was kind of spun off uh, out of uh, Platforma Tech. And at Dashbit, uh, we are working with clients as part of the uh, EDS or Elixir development subscription. And, um, and so, so this is a service where uh, we work, uh, like our engineers work di- directly with company uh, engineers. So yeah, I suppose the name of the company changed, but uh, as far as, as far as my day job, Things didn't really change that much because when I came to uh, Platformatic, we start, we just started that um, subscription service, and uh, I, I was for, uh, helping with that uh, uh, ever since. And um, yeah, it's gonna be almost two years uh, in a couple of months. Uh, nice, which is just nice. So, are you? Do you spend most of your time working with clients who are needing uh, technical consulting? Um, so this, uh, this has changed a little bit in the last, uh, um, in the last maybe month or so, um, because yeah, so, um, okay, j- 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 just, to, just to roll back a little bit. So, so we work with the clients, but also that gives us ability to work on open source projects, uh, as well. Um, so we've been working, uh, for example, on Broadway, uh, that was like directly spun out of. Uh, conversations with clients and uh, kind of uh, problems they were running into with maybe using GenStage directly. Um, and, and then we were working on some other projects. And so what changed recently is you may have heard we are launching a product, actually. Uh, that's a byte pack. And uh, that, that is uh, something that I was uh, more focused on uh, in, the, uh, in the short term uh, recently. And it has been a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I just had the opportunity to to use Broadway with uh, RabbitMQ. Oh my gosh, it was so easy to just plug and play. Just the stuff just started flowing in from my from my message brokers. It was it was amazing. It was really really easy to work with. So wonderful job with that. I was also using Flow before that, um, uh, but Broadway, yeah, is a little a little bit more higher level. It's super simple to to work with, um, at least to, at least for my use case. Uh, so I, yeah, I really appreciate the efforts that have come out of, uh, platform, platform attack and, and Dashbit to, to spin out, um, Broadway and work on that. That's immensely helpful. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value that those features are being contributed back as open source things. It's like, Hey, we learned something. And instead of just saying, Hey, that's going to be custom code created for this company, kind of like contract for hire work. Instead of just that, it's like, we're going to take something and, and make something bigger. It's easier to apply to everyone. So I think that's really beneficial. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's been it's been great. Um, 
you know, so, so we, we do maintain a, a few libraries, but by working with clients as well, we have that insight into what are the kind of problems they run into. So I sometimes like to say that, you know, that aspect keeps us honest, that like, you know, like we are actually seeing the, the things that are running, uh, you know, like potential problems. And so, um, in a sense, maybe we are uh, keeping even more honest when we work on our own stuff uh, uh, with Bitepack. And th- that was uh, that, that was actually really cool as well because over the last couple of months we we did uh, we were able to contribute a lot of things back um, as well. Uh, lots of uh, live view improvements uh, in particular. Um, most of most of the bike is in live view, which has been a lot of fun as well. So I'm glad you're able to come on the show and talk to us about uh, the new upcoming Elixir 1.11 release. Just before the show and before we started recording, you said, uh, how did you describe this release? I, I would say people will be totally blown away by this release. Yes, totally blown away. And when I've just been looking through the change log, and this is just what's on Master Branch right now, this is some impressive stuff. And some things that are, uh, that even just like the little bullet point mentioning it, it's like you don't have uh, necessarily some real understanding of what that means. So we're happy to be able to talk about what some of these cool features are and what they mean and why we should care. So one, the big one is compilation time improvements. So uh, maybe Wojtek, you can kind of give us some background on kind of how this one came about. Uh, in terms of compilation time improvements, I would say there are kind of like two aspects to it, like the initial compilation, which, uh, you know, you have to compile your dependencies and your project itself. And then there is the recompilation, which is you change something in your project and then uh, a few things are changing. Um, and so uh, I would say this new release is mostly focused on the latter, which is and, and to minimize recompilations as much as possible. And this will, um, this will, uh, I, I think, uh, improve in a big way uh, a lot of pr- people projects. Um, like, like for example, if if you saw that, uh, you know, your your project was maybe recompiling sometimes, you know, like twenty files or or more, uh, then it, it may uh, dramatically uh, dramatically uh, recompile less. So, so for example, um. Uh, I am one of the maintain, maintainers of Hex, and so any like compiler improvements uh, we tend to uh, test on Hex because uh, I, I think it's a pretty nice uh, kind of like a test bed because it is um, I would say it it is not like a huge app, but I would say it's big enough to to kind of like maybe put the compiler through paces and you know test a lot of. Uh, edge cases. Uh, it uses Phoenix, it uses Ecto, uh, all, all that kind of common stuff. So, so for example, in, in Hex, when we changed like the user file, for example, like before this release, it would recompile, uh, I think, 90 files or so, which is not a small number. Uh, so uh, on some computers, maybe that would take a, a second or two, maybe, maybe, maybe more. On Elixir Master, instead of 90, it's going to recompile like 15. Instead of 90 files, it re- recompiles 15. That's huge. Yeah, so not not bad, I would say. Yeah, that's a, that's a big improvement. I, I know that when I'm working on projects and they've, they've, getting, they've gotten kind of large, 
I just I just kind of accept, you know, that if I change this one file, the whole project might recompile, and I I just I don't think about it anymore <laughs> anymore. Luckily, the recompilation, even though it's a lot of files, it still tends to be pretty quick. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't bug me uh, too much. And so I really appreciate efforts to look at that because, you know, I, I, as, as one Elixir user, I know I wasn't even looking for this, this kind of improvement. And so the fact, the fact that you guys are, are checking it out and making dramatic improvements like that, that's pretty amazing. This lends itself to like, you know, the Elixir community, you guys really, really value like developer experience and this kind of stuff like shows, you know, that, that that we're reconsidering recompilation. Um, you know, th- this is in addition to the excellent documentation site, it, you know, at Hex um, that, that, you know, that you, that you help manage. Um, even errors themselves have excellent documentation to, to guide you into, you know, what you, what you did wrong <laughs> perhaps and how you can even fix it. Um, so documentation being first class in Elixir. And now to say that like you've conquered documentation and, and you're moving into a lot of like, um, into a lot of specifics like recompilation that is uh that's a really appreciated yeah so one of the things i think is worth mentioning is there have been some recent community discussions around compilation and specifically around macros and imports and how that can contribute to that need to recompile things i'm just going to include a couple uh links to articles that were mentioning this so as a reference and one of the articles uh was your own blog post Wojtek, about you wrote a script to help um, convert in import calls to alias usages. So maybe you can kind of share a little bit about that and, and kind of how does that applicable with uh, this 1.11 change? In my experience, imports have been uh, the major source of recompilations in uh, people's projects. And uh, th- that is going to be improved uh, in a big way in the next release. Uh, so maybe before talking about imports, it is worth uh, spending out a bit of time um, c- kind of digging out a bit deeper into these recompilations. And the reason for recompilations is that basically the Elixir compiler, when it compiles code and kind of like tracks code, it, it tracks uh, kind of types of dependencies. And in the Elixir version that you are most likely running today, it had three types of dependencies that it was tracking. Compile, struct, and runtime. So compile is when, uh, let's say, some A depends on some B. If B changes, A has to be recompiled. Um, an example is if module A uses macros uh, from module B. Um, and the reason is uh, that we have to recompile is that these macros were expanded. And so these macros, when used in the module A, when expanded, they would have changed what this module A is built from. So that's why when uh, module B is changed, we need to recompile A because the macro definition changed, the generated code, the expanded code uh, changes. Um, and another another type uh, of a compact dependency uh, was was imports. Um, and the, the reason for that was, uh, it, it is kind of subtle, but... Um, the reason is, uh, let's say we import like the whole module, the, the, the whole module B, and uh, we, we use one of the functions uh, in, in our module A, one of the functions that was imported from module B. And now imagine that this function that we imported is removed or renamed. 
we need to catch that so that uh, then uh, we need to catch that fact um, so that we can error in the module A that like oh this function is uh, doesn't exist we don't know what it is so so that's why we add this uh, this dependency this compile time dependency it will tell the compiler that like oh I need to check um, if, uh, if if that function exists. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that's like the compile time dependencies. The the other type is a struct. Uh, so this is when module A uses a struct from module B. Uh, for example, let's maybe you have a function head and you are pattern matching on a on a struct. We have this really nice feature that if you are pattern matching on field names of the struct, if you mistype the field, then you will get an error. And this is exactly because we track uh, the struct. If you uh, uh, Again, if you, if you are pattern matching maybe on some field foo, and all of a sudden you rename this field to something else, the compiler needs to know that you are that you are using it, and it's no longer there, and so, so that it can error. Um, and then on the flip side, if you are pattern matching on a field that uh, let's say doesn't exist yet on the struct, but you go ahead and add it, the compiler needs to know that it can now recompile and everything will be fine. Um, importantly. The struct dependency is kind of like quote unquote nicer than compile time because it's gonna be it's gonna trigger recompilation less less often. It's only gonna trigger recompilations when the uh, when the field names of the struct uh, have changed. Only then, like if you change something else in the module, you're not gonna have a recompilation, which is exactly what you want. And finally, we have the runtime dependencies, which is uh, some function in your module A depends on some function in module B. Everything is on runtime. There is no need to recompile whatsoever. So this is like the quote-unquote nicest. There is an important, very subtle aspect to, to these, and that is the dependencies are uh, what we, we kind of call uh, are transitive. Uh, and it means that, um, let's say you have module A and B and C. If... Um, if we have module C. So module B has a runtime dependency on C. That's fine, right? Like C changes, B doesn't have to be recompiled. But then if A has a runtime, if A has compile time dependency on B, then by this kind of transitivity property, it will also have compile time dependency on C. And kind of like the reason, like an example is again, uh, let's say A calls a macro from B, and the macro in B calls something from C. So C changes, the macro kind of like in the module B like doesn't have to change really because this is a runtime dependency, B doesn't have to recompile. But in A, because it uses the macro, and like the like the body of the macro changed like this logic to 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 kind of to mean what this macro does, changed because C changed. So now A has to be recompiled, and this is by far this is by far the the most common occurrence that like you import some module, it happens to like kind of see maybe like a user struct in your application or something like that. It's kind of uh, it's fine, right? Like oh, it's just a struct, but then oh, you you've just added a dependency. But then if you import that module, you have this transitive uh, kind of property, and now like everything is. Um, everything is uh, compile uh, depending on on each other. 
but uh, there are good news. <laughs> uh, so, so the good news is that um, in the on Elixir Master in the next release, we are changing the struct dependency type. So now struct, uh, so there's no longer be a, like a struct dependency type. It's gonna be an export type or kind of like a interface type, API type. And what it does, it is gonna track like the public interface of a module. And the public interface of the module is the functions that it exports and this, uh, and a struct, um, like the struct fields. So it means now the imports are not gonna cause uh, uh, the com compile time dependency. It's only, uh, so if you import something from, let's say, module B, uh, so A uh, imports something from module B, if B changes, A is only gonna be recompiled if like the public interface of B changed. If there, is a, if there are new fields on the struct, if there are new uh, functions on the struct, uh, on the module. But like if you just change the internals of the module B, A is not gonna be recompiled. And uh, this is like this reason, uh, this is the reason why we see way less recompilations. Again, this like 90 to 15, in hex, um, we have heard like even even more impressive numbers from from other people. Yeah, I'd say the larger the project and the more the more macros being used, either from um, you know Phoenix or from Absinthe or th different things like that. The more macros being used and the more central that code is, the more impact you'll see. So one of the benefits I see personally is you know like one of the things you mentioned there, Wojtek is that if the change to the code that was just made is an internal thing, so imagine I'm writing my code and I've got some unit tests and I'm doing TDD and I'm kind of going back and forth. And in my tests, I'm testing, okay, is, is this behavior correct? And I go and I'm changing the function body. That will not trigger a recompilation of the other files. So that closes that loop and makes that testing round trip uh, test a lot faster. So it just kind of, it, it makes it so it's not getting in my way. Because like sometimes when, whenever you're like changing something, it's pretty central and, you know, it's like 50 files or 300 files are getting recompiled. It's like, I'm just going to have to sit there and wait for several seconds. And that can be enough to just break my flow. So that is, that is a, a huge benefit I see. That's a very subtle benefit, but it's just part of that developer process. Yeah, so, uh, so about that, I, I actually have like a um, short uh, kind of, Random story about this, and this is um, like, like this, you know, recompilations and that um, when uh, Phoenix Live dashboard that I think you did mention on the last podcast or uh, or, or so when that came out, one of the um, one of the other podcasts, the changelog, uh, they are they have a Phoenix app, and uh, Gerald from that podcast actually recorded like a quick little video about the um, the dashboard and live view and stuff like that. And he was actually running into the recompilations issues on air. And like, you could actually hear the fan spinning. So, uh, <laughs> a little bit. so I was like, all right, we, we really need to do something about this. <laughs> um, and that, that, that's, uh, I, I think by then we have already, I, I have already, um, uh, wrote, I have already written the, the articles, uh, that, that you mentioned. And so I, I was actually working with them a little bit on uh, kind of um, getting the changelog uh, code base uh, to, to use like some of these uh, so, some of these concepts to, to basically recompile less. 
So it looks like 111 is coming along really well. Do you have any idea if it's going to be released soon or should we start testing it out? Is it pretty close? Um, I, th- I don't, th- uh, I'm not aware of like a specific ETA, but I believe it's going to be in a couple of months, uh, probably. Uh, as, as many other things, uh, it has been postponed due to pandemic. Yeah, I'm sure that does affect the way uh, people, teams are able to work together. You know, like teams who are already remote, less impacted, uh, but I know it's impacted uh, our, my company and where we work. So the, I knew there are some other features that I'd love to highlight, some of them that you drew my attention to. And one of them that, that you were super excited about was this small IEX improvement. So this one is super cool. It's been a long time that's just been like, oh, yeah, that just doesn't work for this. So tell us about that one. Absolutely. So you just asked whether you, know, you maybe should start uh, playing with uh, the new release or something like that. I think for for ju- for this feature alone, you, you should totally consider that. So basically, this feature is uh, about uh, since basically the beginning of Elixir, we had the H helper in IEX. So you can just H maybe enum module and things like that. And notably, you couldn't like H any of the OTP modules. Uh, so like I, I often have to look up uh, maybe the ETS uh, module, and uh, that that wasn't possible. Uh, until until the next release, basically. Uh, so, and th- this was a long time coming. And um, um, basically, there is um, th- there is kind of like a standardized way to represent documentation in uh, all of the OTP languages, uh, all, all of the languages running on Beam. Um, so on Beam, we have the the Beam files. They they contain chunks. Uh, the chunks are like your code, uh, uh, like the instructions to run your code. And some other things we may have in these chunks are more, are kind of like other things in the chunks may be more, uh, maybe used for tooling. So, so for example, in, in Elixir, when maybe, uh, uh, um, so I think David mentioned that like, uh, Elixir has like great error messages. So you may have seen that like, oh, you call a function and you got a function clause error. And the error actually shows you that like, oh, these are the clauses that we tried and, uh, you know, and we didn't match any of them. So this is exactly because we actually store in the chunk uh, the clauses. Um, so the, the chunks uh, can have like very interesting uh, things. And one of the things uh, that are in the chunk now is the documentation. Um, and, and again, kind of Elixir was storing the documentation in the chunk from from early on, and now um, Erlang, uh, and now so does Erlang. Is that since OTP twenty three? Exactly. Yeah, since okay, OTP so, twenty three. So if I'm if I'm running Elixir, the latest Elixir, but on OTP twenty two, would I see those improvements? Nope. Okay, limited to twenty three. Got it. All right. But that's 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 why we keep moving forward, right? Yeah. Does that mean that one eleven is going to have a hard dependency on OTP twenty three, or could you still use it and it would understand how to skip the documentation? Yeah, uh, the, the answer is it doesn't have hard time, de- uh, hard dependency. It's just uh, if you happen to be using older uh, OTP, you, you are not going to have this documentation. Yeah, so the, I just want to make sure people caught that. that What this benefit is, is, you know, when you're in IEX and you hit H and then you can like, you know, enum dot and tab complete and then get the Elixir documentation for a function and right there in your console, super handy. 
Uh, I use it a lot. Sometimes it's easier to pull that up than it is to like access a website. But the Erlang docs have never been available. And those have always been the case where you'd have to go and look up something. Like if you wanted to call an Erlang specific function, you have to look it up on the Erlang docs. And as awesome as it is that there are public docs, they're not the friendliest. They're not the prettiest. And, but they were never available in IEX either. And so with this latest improvement, if you're using OTP 23, then they're able to be accessed in your console and pull that up, which is going to be super awesome. I'm, I'm excited for that one. It's, a, it's just like this tiny little bullet point on the change log, but like, wow, that, <laughs> that represents a lot of work and, yeah. and a big you know, improvement for me, is, especially if I know about it now, right? Knowing about it, it's like, oh, I can do that now. So that's great. <laughs> There is one. There is one aspect worth mentioning uh, with regards to these uh, these tighter docs uh, integrations, uh, and that is because now we have this standardized way that uh, Erlang uses as well to you know create these chunks. Uh, we uh, have way better tooling support, and in particular, so so like we don't have this. Um, like it is not done yet, but one of the things that we are thinking about is actually building Erlang documentation with XDoc, mm. and um, we, we have we, we have some proof of concepts uh, for that. Oh, oh, this is getting more exciting. I like it. <laughs> so, what is I I think really cool about this is that like again we put a lot of work into XDoc. Like uh, for example, there is the Autocomplete search, like the cross-linking. Uh, we have some like some newer features are like popovers. You can just hover over something and you see what, what what's in there. All of that stuff is gonna work uh, for um, uh, for Erlang as well uh, at some point. Nice. That is really exciting because I love. That's one of the things that's awesome about XDocs. Like we we'll have to have an episode just about XDocs and some of the cool things yeah. you can do. One of the cool things I love is that it's like a static generated content. So it's not like I have to run an Elixir server that's serving up these requests, but it's all static. But there's so much done that's JavaScript side, like with the hover overs, and I can type and it does like local cache in my local browser cache indexes. So I can search and find kind of like deep text search across all these files. Really nice, really nice stuff. So yeah, I love that. And bringing that to make it the Erlang docs, it just makes them more accessible, more searchable, more available to us uh, as uh, when we're on the Elixir side. Yeah. Yeah. So j- just to, just to make it clear, um, I don't think there is a. Um, it, it is too it is too early to say that like about like whether OTP for example is gonna use XDoc, mm-hmm. but for like community packages like uh, telemetry for example, it's uh-huh. it's an Erlang library. Uh, so I think that would definitely benefit from uh, from XDoc. Uh, and again, you know, being able to have this cross-linking between kind of like, uh, so, so uh, we have telemetry, uh, which is in Erlang and like telemetry metrics, which happens to be in Elixir. Now, if they are going to be both built, uh, uh, the documentation is going to be built uh, with XDoc, then it's going to be really easy to move around uh, be- between these. Like, the, like there's actually a shortcut. I don't know if you know, but there is a G a shortcut on X, like you, you can just press G and like go to other package docs. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm really excited to be able to use features like that uh, kind of across the ecosystem. Awesome. I'm glad you clarified that. You had mentioned this morning uh, two other things that have just recently landed. And one of them 
Uh, the first one, I didn't quite understand. And so I'm glad you're able to kind of explain this one. Yeah, so so this is um, uh, I don't know maybe, uh, I'm probably the the most excited person about this feature, uh, <laughs> which is fine. But I, uh, I I happen to be working a lot with like build tools and package managers and stuff like that. So and in th- in those contexts, you uh, often uh, have to create temporary di- directories and things like that. Um, and you know you need to remember to clean it up first because maybe some other test was putting some content there before and uh, things like that. So um, we recently added a new feature to uh, XUnit, which is you are just uh, um, with XUnit you can tag things like you know tag skip for example or tag capture log. Now you you will just tag temp dir. And X do, uh, and X unit will automatically create a temporary directory for you, and it's gonna infer from your test name the path to that temporary di- directory. So this means that it's gonna be unique. Uh, th- this temporary di- directory, nothing else is gonna write into it, and um, yeah, th- this way it's gonna be super easy to have a place to put in uh, like temporary files and stuff like that. Again, maybe not like the most uh, widely used feature, but um, I, I think this is this, uh, like a really nice uh, quality of life improvement. So how will you get access to that temp directory? Will there just be a module attribute for you to use? A great question. and I, I totally forgot to mention that. Um, the, the answer is uh, we have the test context, which is like if you have the test macro uh, and then like the description, and then you can have a second argument. Which um, is so we basically put the te- temp there kind of like variable uh, in there, so we just access it and that makes sense. Yeah. So what is kind of cool about this feature is that it literally landed yesterday uh, <laughs> on master. And speaking about uh, things landing on master, I think it was maybe two or three hours ago. Um, we are gonna have a fantastic uh, new feature uh, in in master as well, and I'm super excited about it. And this is. Um, something that Eric uh, Meadows Johnson uh, was working on for for a while. Uh, Brex, uh, the Brex company, was sponsoring his work to um, basically improve um, software verification, stat- static analysis, uh, and, and things like things like that in Elixir. And this new feature is um, allowing compiler to. Um, track uh, maps uh, more, like there, there's going to be more compiler checks for maps. And to me, so this is kind of vague, maybe a little bit, um, I would say the concrete example and something that I'm very excited to uh, to use myself in my code is that, uh, let's say you have a function and you pattern match on, a, like you happen to be using a struct, maybe you pattern match on a date uh, or something like that. Uh, and so you pattern you pattern match on date and assign that to a variable. And then in your function now, if you do like the variable dot some field, and if now, uh, like before today, you could put anything in there and the compiler will uh, will take it. You would get a runtime error, of course, if the field doesn't happen to exist. But, um, but uh, as of a couple hours ago, uh, the compiler will be able to track that as well. Um, and I think this is just the first step into more uh, features like that, more software verification uh, in Elixir, basically um, kind of inferring more uh, from uh, f- from your code and uh, 
uh, doing more checks, uh, doing more useful uh, checks and doing more useful error messages. That's very exciting. This this reminds me back at uh, maybe the last ElixirConf. Um, Jose had mentioned that <laughs> this is actually a funny moment at the at ElixirConf. He mentioned that we're, we we looked into ty- a type system for Elixir and everybody cheered, uh, implying that maybe we're going to do it. <laughs> and then he said, we're not going to do a type system. And then everyone cheered again. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, so, so not to say that this is a type system, um, but it, it looks like there's been a lot of good work and progress to getting some of the benefits that a type system uh, could provide. So this introspection on structs and maps like you're, like you're mentioning. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Making good, honest promise. Yeah. I just want to mention one thing about that. As a little bit of background for you, dear listener, uh, Elixir is a strong dynamic language, like in the type system quadrant. It's a strong dynamic. And this feature is one of those features that Elixir has that like optional features or, or new improvements that kind of pushes more towards the static side, uh, which is really cool. Yeah, because that, what that means is it gives us more compile time checks. And I have a, a link in the show notes uh, where you can kind of read up on a blog post of mine about how Elixir and the, those type systems and what those mean, the type system quadrants, how, what that actually means for us. But yeah, this is a really subtle but beneficial one. Because when you're declaring, like sometimes I will even declare in my function head that I'm pattern matching on a struct not because I actually am referencing anything specific to that struct in there. I might even just be passing it along. But I'm doing it partly for documentation and partly just as a pattern match to say, I don't want anything else in here that isn't this struct. But this gives you that extra little bit where you've pattern matched and you've bound that, uh, that match to something like, you know, customer. And I can say customer dot and a field on that struct. And if that field is uh, mistyped or it gets renamed, uh, now it will give me a compilation warning saying, oh, this doesn't match what's actually defined on the struct, where previously it would just be a runtime error. That is a wonderful improvement that is, I'm sure there's some interesting, uh, you know, comp size stuff behind this about how, you know, type analysis and doing all that. And I don't have to worry about that. I just get the benefit. So I'm just excited. That's that is, And that just landed like an hour ago from when we were recording. So this is breaking news, folks. You heard it here first. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I I just wanted to add uh, re- really quickly. Uh, basically, what you uh, what you said, Mark, that um, it, it's not as as if you know, like it's kind of like types, as in it's like a taboo keyword, right? Uh, but I I think it is quite different than maybe kind of more um, more mainstream ap- approaches to types. Uh, and, and exactly what 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 um, I, I think David said about that moment in the in the ExerConf uh, talk. Uh, about you know type systems and and stuff like that. I, I w- w- what I personally really like about where uh, kind of this is going, where this work on uh, more static analysis uh, is going, is that anything that is going to be added to Elixir in that kind of uh, in that sense st- will still feel like a, like Elixir. Uh, like we are not going to u- lose like the di- dynamic aspects of uh, Elixir. And exactly what you what you said, Mark, that. It is actually idiomatic, uh, I, I would say, to use uh, struct in pattern matches. Like even if you don't actually care, it, it is idiomatic to to pattern match on structs because it serves as documentation uh, primarily. And so now the compiler will kind of, kind of use uh, that 
information even more. But, but again, we are not kind of like changing how you necessarily how you are writing elixir code. We just write it the same way we did. Uh, it's just that a compiler is smarter to kind of know what we mean and can perform extra work. So I still haven't delved into the compiler at all, so I don't know much about it, but I'm curious, do you have to pattern match a struct and assign it to a variable to get these new checks? Or would the compiler know that it was a struct even though you didn't pattern match the struct? Uh, you have to pattern match. Wojtek, are there any other changes you wanted to call attention to? Yeah, I think uh, there are. So, so I mentioned that maybe like the major um, major things. Uh, like this is obviously not just that. Uh, the, there are a ton of uh, quality of improvement changes. Um, uh, as uh, as sort of usual, there are uh, improvements to the calendar uh, aspects. So uh, there is, uh, for example, the strf time um, a new function. Uh, so now kind of uh, that, that's in core. One one uh, function that I that I kind of like that that's going to be new is a new function in the task module, uh, the task uh, await many, and uh, so the, so it is uh, it, it is a pretty common problem and, and something that we were running uh, pretty pretty often when like talking with uh, working with clients that you know maybe they were um, uh, they let's say had a, like a list maybe of hundred URLs and they were just you know in a map. The task async and then in a map task await uh, and, an, and, and and a problem with this approach is that like well first you have just spawned a hundred processes which may not be the most uh, efficient use of your resources but also this this task await uh, like awaits the response there is a timeout but because we are doing that in a loop the timeout are kind of cumulative like worst case scenario uh, you know, you you may you may uh, wait for you know like hundred uh, times five, like in, in the most pathological <laughs> case, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know something around that. So so uh, um, there is already a function uh, uh, that kind of alleviates it, which is task uh, async stream. So you pro process the stream, and then you you can control the concurrency, you can control t timeouts. Um, now there is the task await many. Uh, as well, so you would await on the list of uh, tasks, uh, and there is just going to be one timeout for it. Uh, so I think it's a pretty nice addition. Yeah, that is cool because that is one of those things where it's like, like you mentioned, it's like it can be just a little unpredictable about how long will this actually take if I tell it to stop. Await many sounds like a, a nice feature to kind of help give clarity around that, so I know more. Uh, I can have better control about making something stop at a certain time. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to mention one thing that uh, we didn't have a, a lot of time to uh, to discuss, which, which is totally fine. But when we were talking about compilations and that import versus aliases and the script, and by the way, I'm not trying to upsell the script. Uh, and uh, in mo like as far as the compilation aspects, the script that changes the imports to aliases, like as far as the compilation aspect. The script is no longer necessary, but I think it is still. Uh, and but still, the reason that I I, I, I wanted to mention it is that um, I think there is besides like the compiler um, trade-offs, there is like the design aspect uh, to imports versus ISIS. And, and I just wanted to uh, kind of mention it uh, uh, when I have a chance. And so what I wanted to add is that like. 
importing uh, functions from you know other modules like it is kind of easy like oh you know you, you don't have to type the module but it adds out a bit of ambiguity like where does this function come from and i would say that it is totally fine for like the most commonly used functions like you know maybe um, a good example is i don't know you write a things controller and you do the send resp it is nice to just send resp <laughs> Yeah. as opposed to use the fully qualified name but uh, in less common uh, kind of cases I think referring to the module by its name or by an alias for that matter uh, actually improves code so in the next release even though there is um, maybe kind of like less pressure on you to uh, to like fix your fix your imports because it's slow um, even though there is less pressure on that I would still uh, advise everyone to kind of reconsider these imports versus ISS and just probably use ISS more for the sake of uh, readability. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And the first time that I came across that was actually in a Phoenix release. It I think it came in 1.4 where they changed the routes. So instead of importing all the routes that were generated, now it's aliased as routes. And so you just do routes dot then your helper function that was the first time i came across that and i was like oh that's strange but i actually really enjoyed it because now i know exactly where this is coming from um and i also enjoyed that they named it something short <laughs> it wasn't something like a, <laughs> right. a controller helpers you know dot my path um so it was pretty cool well thank you Voitech, for coming on if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online where should they go to do that i am uh, at, at Voitech mach at twitter github and things like that. Um, I am uh, occasionally on the Elixir forum as well and Elixir Slack. Uh, there is way too much stuff uh, going on in there, so I don't uh, really keep uh, keep, keep track of uh, what, what's happening, but you can uh, uh, DM, DM me and things like that, and I will be happy to, uh, happy to, happy to talk, yeah. Awesome. Well, if you want to start playing with the new features, uh, I would encourage you to be using ASDF, which is the an Elixir and Erlang version manager. There's a, a lot of work that's been done in that to pre-build uh, releases and even master branch and master against uh, a different OTP versions. So if you're new to ASDF, you can check out a link in the show notes to a blog post I have on how to get started with that. Yeah, ASDF is great, and uh, that, that's what I mean. That's what I use as well. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.